You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. But wildebeest, in Africans, it's, it means wild beast. What can they teach us? But researchers are starting to look into the fact that this migration and, and this river crossing of the, of the Mara River uh, in Tanzania is, is not as frenzied or chaotic as it might appear. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. We're both laughing. Why has it taken so long to cover the wildebeest? I know, Chris. It's, it's crazy that we waited this long, but I think it's going to be worth the wait. This podcast should be really, really entertaining. Today... We're going to talk, of course, all about wildebeest, but we get to talk about one of the greatest spectacles in nature mm-hmm. as far mm-hmm. as the mar- migration that they do. And I watched a lot of videos this yeah. week and just, uh, it's just such a, such a cool, cool species and um, definitely very iconic throughout Africa, uh, wildly popular. And uh, I think it'll be worth the wait. For sure, for sure. I mean, like you said, very iconic. It, it, just this African ungulate. I, I knew this had to be one of your favorites, you know, because I, I want to ask you, you've seen them in the wild. I mean, you've had to have. Yes, I'm actually, yeah. mm-hmm. I'm actually uh, staring right now as we record this podcast at a beautiful photo uh, that my then fiance, John, <laughs> took <laughs> when uh, we were in Zambia in North Luanga National Park, uh, visiting our good friend Allison, who was relocating rhinos there. And it's just such a beautiful photo. It's a solo wildebeest, a male. It's a blue wildebeest. And we'll Mm -hmm. talk a lot in this podcast today about the difference between the two species, the blue wildebeest and the black wildebeest. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just a reminder of how much I love Africa, how much I love ungulates. And of course, it's lined up next to a brilliant photo of an elephant, that uh, visited our camp uh, when we were there, and then a, a zebra, a common zebra. Uh, so yeah, it, so this is a, this species is very near and dear to my heart. I did not get to work with wildebeest uh, when I was a zookeeper working hoofstock, 
Uh, that would have been fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've been blessed enough on each one of my trips to Africa to see wildebeest in the wild. However, Chris, mm-hmm. I have not seen any route or any part of the Great Migration. So that you have reason to go back. A thousand million percent. Yes, yes. yes. And now I know the dates and where they're kind of supposed to be at. And we'll be talking Mm -hmm. all about that when we get to behavior and we get to the migration. So definitely always, always a reason to go back to Africa for sure. Well, and like last week, we, we were in West Africa talking about the pygmy hippo, mm-hmm. and we both said about how we're, we're hoping to go to Africa soon, you know, hopefully next year for me, and then hopefully within a couple of years for you to see this. I, I, Tanzania, going up into Kenya, that part of the world has been at the top of my bucket list and dream vacations. And I'm going to talk a little bit about ecotourism here in a little bit later, but wildebeest, in Africans, it's, it means wild beast, mm-hmm. but also new. Gnu. I used to say Gnu as a kid. G-N-U, but it's pronounced new, mm-hmm. is also used by Great Native Scrabble Africans. Great Scrabble words. It is. It is G-N-U. <laughs> good, good score one. But that, you know, that's what they've been known, known as. In, in Native Africa, that's what they, they call them. Well, Chris, whether you say Gnu or new, uh, hopefully they're going to become everyone's new favorite ungulate. Yes, there you go. <laughs> if we they do weren't lo- already. We do love our ungulates. We absolutely do. And, and just a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters. It, it means the world to us with your support. And you have a shout out this week. I have two shout outs. I want to thank uh, Ireland716 for the beautiful, glowing written review on iTunes. Thank you so much. They actually commented on how well you and I work together, Chris. Oh. Which just, yeah, it makes it, that makes me happy because we do work very well together. We are good friends, animal dorks, scientific colleagues. And of course, teachers as well. So, um, so I'm, I'm glad that people pick up on that, that you and I are having a lot of fun. And then, oh my goodness, it gives me goosebumps. It <laughs> makes me smile ear to ear. I actually uh, went ahead and posted this comment on my own personal Facebook page, but I have to give a standing ovation, hats off, smile ear to ear to Carlo, who also left us a glowing review on iTunes. And I quote, The way they speak about every creature they cover is like an hour-long love letter each week. I cannot recommend this more. And Um, I have goosebumps right now. I'm almost going to cry a little bit because it really is like each species that we cover, Chris and I go into it knowing some facts, of course, about the animals that that we're covering. But we do so much research and I do fall in love with the species every week. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. am floored. I... When I'm taking a shower, or walking the dog, or uh, feeding the horses, playing with my kids, whatever, I'm still thinking about that species and spewing yes. off facts to my husband yeah. John, who already probably knows the facts 99 percent of the time. <laughs> yeah, but I do really feel like it is a love letter, and I thought that was a great description. So, Carlo, Thank you. yeah, five hearts to you. Thank you so much for noticing and mentioning that. That was that was an amazing review. Thank you, Carlo. And you know, yeah, we've been together twelve years. I mean, it's you know, back in grad school, and I was just thinking about it. I was like, I don't think you and I have ever gotten in an argument ever. 
<laughs> we never will. We just we just work well together. So we do definitely yeah. great chemistry. And uh, um, well, Chris, it's funny now too because I found some old emails of when I first was soliciting you to learn more about the graduate school program, <laughs> and I was very persistent. I just, I mean, I wasn't annoying. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to like keep emailing people every day or anything like yeah. that. I followed the the golden rule of you know wait a week and then double circle back and make sure huh. see if they have responded or if they are available to respond so but i think what obviously sealed the deal which i always tell uh people when they are applying to grad school is uh m- meet the team in person to make sure cuz it needs yeah. to be a good fit it's not it's not one sided it needs to be that you are a good fit for the team because it is such a close intimate working relationship when you're doing research and working in a lab setting and le- working with live animals especially horses or any mm-hmm, any mm-hmm. or any wildlife um so yeah, it's like uh, we just uh, you know, I love your family. I love your husband. You you're he's he's my brother, you're my sister and you know, I love your children. It it's really great when you can find somebody with with the same passion. And Yes, yes, like it, yeah. yeah, to be dorks with it. I can send you an article and be like, "Oh my gosh, look at this." Or or even earlier today, Chris sent me an article about wildebeest, but I couldn't open it, so I'm messaging him back i can't open it and then he's like google this and i'm like i'm trying and just i mean we dorked out for probably 10 minutes about me just trying to find this article so that i could read it so that we could talk about it and it's super fun for us (laughs) it is it is it's fun it is fun and you do i always imagine these animals on earth saying thank you for telling our story i go back i just i don't know why i thought of it the star nose mole just some random animal that lives there in North America and and we did a whole podcast on them and you get to learn about them. So, An hour long love letter. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully our, our listeners are getting that too and, and we can keep doing this and bringing this to you. Like this week talking about wildebeest, I just, I, I know Angie's fired up and I cannot wait to get to behavior. So I, I tried to pare down some of my slides <laughs> just to give you some, some space and a platform. But starting off, I'm looking at this face they've got the most unique, you know, in the heart of beast and, and the other relatives of them, mm-hmm. but they have the most unique face. I don't know. How, how do you describe their face? Ah, <laughs> I can easily do that because okay. of, uh, because of horses and horse confirmation. Yes. Okay. Uh, the wildebeest, they have a really broad face and a broad muzzle, but what really stands out is their nose. Their nose has almost a convex profile and in horses, we call it the Roman nose mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it just, it's, there's not like a bump on it or anything. It just has this big boxy profile uh, that almost comes out in a concave shape. And so that really sets them apart, I think, from a lot of the other ungulates. And then to complement the shape even more, their face is dark in color, almost in black, which really almost highlights the uh, concave nature of the of the of the head in in the nose area mm-hmm. and then of course everybody has to love the wildebeest they have a mane they have shaggy manes and sh- uh, shaggy tails too which are pretty well known which of course that sets them apart from other members of the antelope family I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but what I also think is really unique about wildebeest and how they're built, is unlike other types of antelopes that are pretty uniform throughout from head to toe, wildebeest are, I guess, top-heavy 
for Mm -hmm. lack of better terms. The front end of their body is just built like a bull, like a buffalo almost, (laughs) in my opinion. It's massive. It's very massive. It's very, very heavily built. But then they have like slender hindquarters and almost like skinny or spindly legs. Like the front end doesn't match the back end. (laughs) No, it doesn't. (laughs) You know, like the front end is all serious and like, of course, they have horns. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when I – uh, discuss the differences between the black and the blue wildebeest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's just this big boxy face and all serious and then this shaggy kind of party mane and then this like slender little booty. I know. <laughs> and legs. <laughs> that neck. Oh yeah. That neck yeah, is just I mean, massive. It's yeah, it's 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 very compact, very thick. So for me, from an ungulate point of view, they're almost they are almost crossed between like a bovid and then like a uh, traditional antelope, how you mm-hmm, think of like mm-hmm, a Thompson's mm-hmm. gazelle or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But for me, Chris, my favorite part of wildebeest, at least on the blue wildebeest, is their stripes. So across this gray, tannish, brown body, they have black stripes that run pretty much from their throat latch or behind their their ears that run vertical, top to bottom, all the way down their neck, past their shoulders, and into their barrel region. By the time you, by the time you get to their mid mid backbone, the stripes stop. And these stripes are thin. But when I was working in um, Terengary National Park, we were actually taking photographs of them because the stripes can be used as uh, a personal ID, like a fingerprint, because similar to zebras these stripes are unique for each individuals. So if you can figure out the stripe pattern, you can ID specimen season after season. And that was some of the software the researchers that I was working with were looking into. So you know me, I love striped ungulates. Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh copies, zebras. Uh, and so the blue wildebeest is no different. I could look at a picture of them all day because of these stripes just they just they're mesmerizing and probably the last uh characteristic that wildebeest are really well known for is their beard so depending on the species and or the subspecies of the blue wildebeest which chris will go over here shortly uh they have a beard underneath their chin and it kind of runs even past their chin down into their neck and it can be different colors from tan or white uh to even a grayish blue in color or black. And the blue wildebeest, the reason it gets its name is because their base coat, which can be this gray blue, in some angles with sunlight can almost have a blue sheen to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see it. Whereas the black wildebeest, as far as its coloration, it doesn't have stripes. So there's definitely that difference. Uh, And it also has a little bit more cream golden color in its mane and its tail is also this straw yellow cream golden color. And the black wildebeest has a very distinct black face, the whole face, where the blue wildebeest, only the middle part of their, their face between their eyes is typically the solid black color. So there are some pretty predominant differences between the blue and the black wildebeest, but it's pretty much going to be the stripes, the blue sheen of the blue wildebeest, and the horns. The horns are definitely very different uh, and can be easily identified. The blue wildebeest 
kind of just go from the side and curve up where the black wildebeest uh, travel for they're bigger and mm-hmm. they travel forward and then hook up. Yeah, they look they look menacing. I mean, they look really menacing. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. don't want to you don't yeah. want to be in the you don't want to be in the pathway of I, either species. But I think the black wildebeest it is a little bit more ominous. With yes, the horns. For, mm-hmm. for sure, for sure. And then just in sizes, the blue wildebeest and, and the black. The blacks are a little bit longer, but a little bit lighter than the mm-hmm. blues. So the blues can stand uh, forty up to 48 inches or 120 centimeters at the shoulder. So only four feet tall at the shoulder. So the, it's just, you have these, it's funny whenever we cover these animals, they, they just always seem bigger in your mind than they, they actually are, um, you know, as far as height and stuff. But weight, I mean, the blue wildebeest in from 260 to 600 pounds. So they may not stand as tall, but like Angie said, those necks, those the front half of that animal is just so muscular, so thick, a lot of strength there. And then length of the body is about 48 inches. So four by four with the blue wildebeest, the black wildebeest weighs a little bit less up to like 350, maybe 400 pounds, uh, but can grow up to two meters or six and a half feet in length. And again, is about four feet tall at the shoulder. So, so they, they're, they're not tiny. They're just like little tanks. You know? Yes. Great yeah. description. Mm-hmm. Beautiful yeah. tanks. Yeah, and, and, you know, they need to survive. I mean, they, they survive predation from mainly lions and, and other species. Now, the range, all the way from South Africa to East Africa, Kenya, down Tanzania, and then, like Angie said, she was in Zambia, over to Angola, and then down, going down into Botswana, South Africa. But again, human development has had a major impact on them and, and their ability to range and things like that, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute. You know, wildebeest, there's the black and the blues. And then within the blues, you have, you have five subspecies. So, you know, they all range a little bit differently, but they all prefer usually open woodlands, the floodplains, maybe some dense bush, but I found this interesting. Sometimes you can find them in some mountainous regions up to like 4,500 feet or two, over 2,000 meters. Yeah, I definitely didn't know that. I was I was on flat plains. And the few times that I've been uh, to Tanzania and Zambia and South Africa, I usually go during the dry season too. So mm-hmm. uh, things aren't very lush or very green. It's it's more brown. Uh, but yeah, definitely not in, like like you mentioned, not in the elevations or into the high woodlands. Now, why care about wildebeest? I'm just going to let you go. Go. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're so beautiful to watch when they're on the plains. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. But there are several ecological roles that they fill. As an herbivore and a grazer, they fertilize uh, the grass that they consume when they defecate. And when they migrate, which we'll talk a lot about here later on the podcast, they basically become ecosystem engineers. Mm-hmm. And do you remember who our other ecosystem engineer was? Oh, beavers. Very good. Yes. yes. Yeah. Right. They yeah. can really dramatically change the landscape with their behaviors mm-hmm. and how they move and, and what they do. And so really important, and Chris will talk about too, uh, during evolution, how long the wildebeest have been living where they've been living. A long time, long time. 
a million, I mean, a long time. Long, yeah. uh, so the way they move through the landscape and eat the grasses and then fertilize the grasses and trample th- the waterways, which we'll talk a lot about. And even as they die, when they're crossing the giant Mara River, uh, because they, they can't make it or they get eaten by a crocodile, they play this really important ecosystem role in the way that they change the landscape. And of course, their role in the food web as a prey uh, species for several large predators as well. Just a fantastic role in the ecosystem, especially in places where they migrate, because not all wildebeest migrate. And we'll talk about that too as we move through the podcast. And then speaking of these beautiful videos that I was watching of the wildebeest crossing these rivers uh, and doing their migration routes. And then, of course, myself seeing them on three different trips to Tanzania, South Africa, and Zambia. They play a huge economic role. Tourists, myself included, love seeing wildebeest. They're beautiful. They're stunning. A lot of times they're in large groups. And they're just an iconic mammal, large mammal in Africa. And people want to see them. And so, therefore, uh, they can generate a lot of revenue during safaris. And um, and so therefore, the wildebeest have a pretty big economic impact uh, with the jobs they create uh, through safaris and mm-hmm. um, investment and things like this. Massive, massive. And I want to talk about that. I have some numbers on it too in Kenya on their, on their tourism. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you talk about... You know, it's like in North America, the buffalo. Uh, exactly, Chris. Yeah. Yes, great, great analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they would migrate across the plains of of North America and and fertilize the soils with feces and urine and dead bodies that feed insects and microbes, vultures, and, and mm-hmm. yeah, they they just are such a key species for Africa. You know, like the buffalo were so. Yeah, very, very huge. Like I said, to see the mass migration, that should be on everybody's bucket list. It, it, it is a, something I definitely will see in my lifetime. And since I was a kid watching those videos of them crossing the Mara River and just like, make it, make it. I know. <laughs> right now I'm like gritting my teeth. Like, <laughs> the anxiety. It's almost like I'm watching like Ozark or Game of Thrones or something where I'm just like, <sighs> oh, are they going to make it or not? And yeah. And, most of the time they do, but sometimes they don't. I saw it, I saw an amazing video of, an, of a zebra yesterday of a mom, a lion grabbed, it must have been maybe an eight-month-old zebra, a lion grabbed it, but the mom came charging in with her teeth barren and bit the lioness and was like stomping the lioness. The lioness let it let the, the youngin up and the youngin ran off and the mom ran off with it. So I could see that with wildebeest too. You know, they're, they're just, oh, they're just amazing creatures. Now, this week, Angie, I I wanted to talk a little bit about their conservation because you see that they're least concerned, but, you know, with any species in decline, there are challenges. I mean, there's only 18,000 black wildebeest, a a smaller population in South Africa. Now, the blue wildebeest is is doing much better at one and a half million, and and I read 1.3 million alone on the Serengeti, like massive population doing doing pretty well but there have been instances in the last couple hundred years where their populations have plummeted you know drastically and there are things that are happening that that 
are having massive impacts on them, especially their migration with farms and, and other development in Africa. Oh, absolutely, Chris. And that's uh, when I was in uh, Tarangiri National Park in like central Tanzania, we were studying a population of eastern white bearded wildebeest whose numbers had just plummeted in the past 30 years. Uh, and this this is a non-migratory population that had been historically in this region doing okay for many, many years. And their numbers are declining something drastically by like 40% or something. And so the researchers are trying to figure out why. And to do that, they wanted to ID individuals from season to season to see what's happening and look at population counts. So yes, there is this massive population of over a million in the Serengeti area that make this migration, but populations doing elsewhere, we really need to keep a close eye on. And even, even the ones in the Serengeti, because we're talking about climate change. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then of course, uh, uh, putting up fences for livestock mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. wildebeest have to compete for a lot of the similar grasslands and grazing areas as the livestock. So those have been fun this week to cover uh, species that are of least concern. There, there isn't no concern. Yes, they're still concerned. They're still right. concerned. You know, I always go back to the Saiga. I can't, don't, don't even ask me what episode that was, hundred something, I think, you know, where we saw, you know, a couple hundred thousand or up to 400,000 die, just drop dead mm-hmm. uh, over a period of weeks in 2014 or 15. The, um, um, the film crew out there was watching them just drop dead because they, they don't have the genetic diversity to withstand disease. We saw this in Wildebeest. So, in the 1880s, the rinderpest virus was introduced into Africa by the, the Italians, the Italian army. They brought in cattle from India that came in and introduced this virus that wiped out 90% of the buffalo and cattle in Africa and wiped out a lot of wildebeest and, and other ungulates. And they didn't they don't know the the full impact, but just looking at wildebeest populations, what I could find. In the 1950s, there was about 200,000 in the Serengeti Plain, where today they came, they have come back up 70 years later at 1.3 million. But you know that was one virus, and we all know, and we're probably sick and tired of hearing about viruses right now. But you know that 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 could still happen to them. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1983, over close to 80,000 wildebeest died in the central Kalahari game reserve in Botswana because of drought, because they couldn't escape because of the fences. So they just died, 80,000 of them. In 1993, a a severe drought in Serengeti dropped the wildebeest population of under 1 million. So there is things to, uh, you know, be concerned about. In Namibia and South Africa, like fencing that has been put up for farms and making these game parks, stopping the wildebeest migrations, their populations have crashed, you know, just like you were talking about. And that probably had some influence on it. Now, you did mention climate change. I did look into that. In 2021, in the Maasai Mara, which is what Serengeti Plain, like that's where this migration is, it, it was the grasses didn't come back. They were suffering a drought. And the wildebeest stayed away. Mm, And they talk about Mm -hmm. the Mara River, 
where that those iconic photos and videos of wildebeest crossing, dodging crocs, hopefully making it, it was a it was a trickle of what it normally was, very low low levels. They said hippos could barely submerge themselves. The river was so low because of of drought and erratic weather patterns. Then they said the rains came and that caused dramatic flooding. The river was overflowing and they found more wildebeest drowned last year than normal. So they are starting to, to see effects on wildebeest migration through climate change. Now in Africa, they're expecting to endure up to 50% more warming than the rest of the planet. They're just, they're starting to see more extreme weather events, things like that, that's going to have an effect on obviously the wildebeest and their migrations. Now, where their concern is, like you just talked about, the Serengeti National Park attracts over 90,000 tourists a year. And the migration is a big draw of that. So they're, they're concerned that irregular migration patterns will impact that because you can't predict it. And then I was reading this long article about it and the, the Maasai tribes that de- they now depend on tourism. That's a big part of, you know, because they can't just go out in the bush and hunt and all the, the laws that restrict them. So they've turned to tourism and that's a big, big impact on them. So they're anticipating climate change to have with the economic impacts. Now, as promised, I just really quickly jumped into ecotourism during COVID just to see what's going on in that part of Africa. I'm starting to see reports that illegal poaching has increased dramatically during the pandemic. Uh, Rangers are reporting across Africa an increase in snares and traps. You know, a lot of this could be bushmeat trade. Um, You know, initially rhino poaching was down due to lockdowns in South Africa, but there was a report in December of last year, just, just about 45 days ago or 30 days ago recording this that they 24 rhinos were found poached within two weeks and seven were from Kruger and then other parks across South Africa. So it picked, has picked back up. Obviously we won't know the impacts for a couple of years, you know, how bad it has, but there have been massive impacts on the people there. You know, in 2020, Kenya lost $1 billion USD in tourism and Tourism contributes to about 10% of their their economy, kind of like here in New Zealand. We've gotten hit hard with no tourism and employs over 2 million people. And a lot of those people lost their jobs. And so they have turned to poaching and other things just to survive. Now, I'll end this with there has been some good news in late 2021 going into 2022. Tourism is starting to pick back up in Tanzania and Kenya. Uh, start in the Maasai Mar and the Serengeti. So they, they expect a much better uh, tourist year heading into 2022 uh, with the pandemic. So things like vaccines and, and ha- have made a positive impact to where people can travel again. And like I said, hopefully next year I will be there uh, in Tanzania sending reports and pictures <laughs> to all of our listeners. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Okay, switching gears, let's look a little bit into evolution. It's an ungulate. We just did this order last week. Artiodactyla. Yes, even toed ungulates, which are just about as good as my favorites, the odd toed ungulates or the Paris dactyls. I know, I know, but Angie, there's there's animals in this this order that, that trumps it. I'm sorry. And that is the special, you wouldn't think it, put you on the spot. <laughs> I can see the squirrel running in your head. <laughs> You wouldn't think they would belong in even-toed ungulates. Oh, Takins. No! (laughs) It is late there. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's it's like late at night in Florida, mid-afternoon here in New Zealand. Let's do some charades. Uh, Flipper? (laughs) There's a hint. Oh, dolphins. Yes, yes. yes. Oh, we did talk. Yes. I was thinking of an actual land ungulate. Okay. No. So it's like Takins? Can we talk about Takins? I'll always talk, talk about, about Takins. No, being that they have whales, dolphins, porpoise, I just Yeah, they, it does they, make them pretty special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a very special order to us. And I was thinking about it. We need to go back to the ocean here soon. But yeah, about 94 species species of whales, dolphins, por- porpoise in the order Artiodactyla. So I love that fact. I love it. I love it. Now back to wildebeest, the family's Bovidae. 143 species, bison, buffalo, antelope, sheep, goat, muskoxen, blah, 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 domestic cattle. Subfamily is interesting. So Alcelophinae. So this is your wildebeest, your hartebeest, your bontabox, and your toppy. Remember, I've seen those at the zoo and the harola. So mm-hmm. some, some very unique antelope-like ungulates. And there's still, it's funny, you, you, when I do read in this evolution, there's so much debate going on because of genetics. Genetics have really changed a lot uh, in the classification system where animals are, are being split into subspecies, uh, other species. But yeah, there's a lot of, did you work with heart of beasts or any of those? Toppy? I did not. No. 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 Okay. Well, and then the, the, the genus for the wildebeest is kind of shot... Conochites, so that's the genus. Very good. Uh, Chris just edited out us going back and forth for like three minutes. Conochites, Conotis, Conotitatis. I'll just say C. Uh, so the black wildebeest is Conochites gnu. 
Mm-hmm. And then the blue wildebeest is Conochides tyrannus. Now, the five sub- subspecies is the blue wildebeest, the eastern white-bearded wildebeest. That's the one that's you were the one doing. one I saw. Right? Mm-hmm. right. Cookson's wildebeest, Nysaland wildebeest. Very rare. Yes. And then the western white-bearded wildebeest. So the, the five subspecies. And I think the eastern is the one that does most of the, the migrating, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm right. Now, evolution, we've talked about this. We did this last week. It emerged about 60 million years ago. And then bovids, you know, what really emerged in Africa about 23 million years ago. That's when they really started to radiate out. Now, all male bovids have horns. We haven't got there yet because you're going to talk about it. But some females do. And wildebeest is one of those species that, that does, right? Yes, both yeah. sexes have yeah. horns. Males are slightly larger, their horns, but yeah. the females still have them. Yeah. Now, the majority of our bovinae live in Africa. So, And then the first ones, cows, elands, nilgai groups, they came out first. And then the heart of beast and wildebeest emerged later. Obviously, antelope. So the alcelophinae group first appears in the fossil record about 5 million years ago. And then our oldest fossils of a wildebeest, like Angie said earlier, was the blue wildebeest, dates about 2.5 million years ago. So that's that's when they came. That's when the, this version that we see is is millions of years old in right. evolutionary it's development. It's been doing what it does, the migrating ones, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through the Serengeti for millions of years. So yeah. when we talk about the them being ecosystem engineers and how important they are, not just for the tourism dollars, but for the plant species and as prey for other large predators, uh, there's a lot going on that we don't even know about how much they're yeah. helping the environment as they cover thousands of kilometers. Yeah, and surviving, you know, earth cooling, earth warming, they they have gone through a lot. And DNA is showing the black wildebeest diverged about a million years ago from the blues. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, Angie. Are wildebeest dinosaurs? <laughs> Did they emerge from dinosaurs? Ooh, I can get this one right. No. Yes. <laughs> but... But I it ran might be late this- here in Florida when we're recording, <laughs> but not that late. Okay, okay. So I did run across this. I saw wildebeest related to dinosaurs. I was like, "What? No!" So I went and and dug into this article, and it's not that the wildebeest are related to dinosaurs. It's through convergent evolution that an ancestor of today's wildebeest, the Russengorix which died out about 200,000 years ago, evolved a cranium and, and a nose that's very similar to duck-billed dinosaurs. And oh, I was like, what? Yeah, that's interesting. We love oh. duck-billed dinosaurs in my family. Or you mean the hadrosaur family. <laughs> <laughs> Way outside my knowledge Thank base. you, Zachary and Xander, for making me read you those uh, books every night. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I can see. I can see the, the visual on the bone structure of that, yeah. that flat, large head. Yes, I sent that picture to you because I was like, you have to look at this. So convergent evolution, We Angie and I talk a lot about it, so that's why I wanted to bring it up again. 
And the definition is the process whereby distantly related organisms independently evolve similar traits. Right. Like this is a good idea. And And it works, right? Mm -hmm. It works. So what is they they have this really strange nose and it's got a large dome. Mm -hmm. And again, it's very similar. So what the scientists did is they did some CT scans and then built some 3D models. And they were trying to figure out, okay, why did this species of wildebeest evolve this? And they eliminated male aggression, so like fighting or heat regulation because it's hot in Africa. And really what they think is 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 a way to communicate. So that the, the duck-billed dinosaurs, I always want to say platypus. It's just so funny. <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's a dinosaur. Had these large domes so they could... F- do these infrasonic low frequency calls that travel over long distances. And so through this modeling, they, they found, have you ever heard of the, the Vuvuzela? No. So the Vuvuzela is a, is a horn. You, you hear it at soccer games. And in the World Cup that was in South Africa, I remember it was driving everybody crazy because everybody was using these. And I'm going to play a sound real quick. It sounds like bees. It literally does. So this is what it sounds like. And this is kind of the, the low frequency that the scientists think this, this wildebeest was resonating across the plains of Africa. Could you hear that? Oh, yeah, definitely. So annoying. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm laughing because that's such an annoying noise throughout a whole soccer or football match. I just uh, drove people nuts during the World Cup. But they said their calls were very similar in the frequency as that. So they had this large dome. And unfortunately, they went extinct about 200,000 years ago because I guess it didn't help them that much communicate. But that is the... Rusin Gorix. You can look it up. Really fascinating. I sent the pictures to Angie. I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about this thing. It looks amazing. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, something to find convergent evolution with a dinosaur that lived 200 million years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that's when they said the duck the uh, platypus, the duck dinosaurs lived. So, mm-hmm. all right. Some quick facts because I really want to get to behavior. I really want to talk about this migration. Wildebeest live about 20 years in the wild, which is really good. I was really surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, average lifespan. Uh, under human care, 21 years, even though there was one that lived to be over 24. Uh, they age them by their teeth, kind of similar to horses and, and, and other ungulates. This is, or, okay, I, I do. I have another factoid to blow your mind here in a minute. One of the fastest land animals, and I know we've mentioned this before. So land, animal, our number one is our... Cheetah. 75 miles per hour, 120 kilometers per hour. Number two, this is when the podcast. Yes. Pronghorn antelope. Yes. 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 Remember that. Mm -hmm. 55 miles an hour, 88 kilometers per hour. And endurance. So they can go for longer periods at that speed. Number three, I think you have one of these down the road from you. That you, you called me yesterday and showed me a. Is Romeo a quarter horse? So. He is. Okay. Well, he's he's a half quarter horse, so okay. he's a he's a an eighth of a horse. An eighth of a horse. Okay, yeah. so quarter horses and springbok can run fifty five miles per hour, eighty eight kilometers per hour, but only for short bursts. 
Okay, so very not endurance. The wildebeest comes in at 50 miles per hour or 80 kilometers per hour, but have endurance. They can run right. that speed a lot longer than their main predator, or a, a major predator of theirs is the lion, who can run almost that fast, but for short bursts. Mm-hmm. So they're fast. I mean, in, in those front quarters, you can see it. Like you just, that musculature, it's just like, and that burst of speed to get away from a predator. That's massive. All right. So I want to blow your mind because when I was looking this up yesterday, this came across my eyes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to bring it up to Angie. What do you think the fastest invertebrate is? <laughs> I've never thought about that before. Uh, yeah. I've seen some spiders move pretty quickly no, that I didn't no, love. Um, no. Let me think about this. It doesn't well, have to be flying. Does it fly? Yes. Okay. okay. This okay. one flies. It's definitely flying. Um, dragonflies are probably too heavy. Bees are weighted down by pollen. <laughs> Horseflies move quickly because I can't. I can't ever get them. Uh, so if you had to bet money on it, I'd say like a horsefly. <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. Yeah! That's amazing. That's Thank amazing. You. Good job. I know. I was like, oh, she'll never guess this. Horse yeah, well, you, you, well, this is why we have a good partnership. You helped me work through it. I actually feel really good about that win. Uh, uh, Xander kicked our butts at uh, Monopoly this weekend. So <laughs> there you go. he had all the money, all the that's, hotels. He had it all. Awesome. That's awesome. Oh, I love it. Uh, yeah, so the fastest invertebrate, horsefly, 90 miles per hour or 125 Oh, oh no, no wonder I can't get after them. I just I just <laughs> no. let them bite me. I'm like, you win. Oh, oh they're the worst. They're the worst. <laughs> yeah. They're the worst. Um, just, again, before we get to the migration, you know, wildebeest are grazers. You know, they eat day and night. You know, it's like... Obviously, the ungulates don't sleep long periods of time like like some of the predators do or carnivores do. Uh, you know, they they like a lot of the different grasses found on the savanna and play, plains. Red, they'll eat some leaves and things, shrubs off trees if they have to. You know, and then obviously they they will migrate to find food. Again, how Angie described that muzzle, it's perfect, perfectly made. You know, again, a couple million years that they've been around you know, this broad row of incisors and lips that they can go and just munch, munch, munch on short grass. And then, like we mentioned earlier, lions, cheetahs, spotted hyenas, African wild dogs, crocodiles, major predators of wildebeest. I mean, crocodiles just probably when they cross the rivers. I did find this factoid interesting. The wildebeest, individuals in larger herds are preyed on more often than those in smaller herds. And they think it's because herd size makes them feel more comfortable and safe. So they're not as aware as a smaller herd's always on alert. So I was, I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, looking at that, like I just, uh, I know you would just love to be out there studying stuff like this. Oh yeah, Chris, all of it is just so fascinating. And the, the migration behavior as far as why do they do it and what are the cues and that's a rabbit hole I went down this week and didn't really come up with too many answers, which I'll discuss, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but just so fascinating. And yes, I could, I could watch them stand there and eat grass all day. I could watch them cross rivers. I can definitely watch mother and calf behavior. Um, they're just, they're just such beautiful creatures. Oh yeah. And just sitting there, watch them on the plains and, and 
watching the lions creep up on them and and to see, you know, the the chances of success. I can just think of all the research projects we could do. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. just across Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, talk about it. let's talk about their behavior. It's 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 just fascinating. It's fascinating. Yes, Chris, the wildebeest, their long distance migration is one of the greatest spectacles in nature. It's just incredible. It's been highly documented. There's a lot of great um, videos out there on YouTube that you can pull up. We'll put some up on the show notes. Just beautiful footage uh, where researchers and film, wildlife filmmakers have have followed them through this often treacherous journey uh, through the Serengeti, which is in northern Tanzania and then up into the southern parts of Kenya in the Masamara, where over a million wildebeest, plus large numbers of zebras and Thompson gazelles, mm-hmm. move across this 30,000 kilometers squared area. Or in more simple terms, about 2 million animals make this 1,000 mile trip each year as they rotate basically in a large circle from southern Kenya, if you can picture it, down into northern Tanzania, and then back up and around. So it's not a linear migration. It's more of a circular migration that they do where they move seasonally between dry and wet seasons, basically following the grasses, looking for the best food. And during this great migration, it's it's pretty. It can be pretty detrimental. Uh, it's estimated that about two hundred thousand animals will either die from starvation or falling victim to predators like the crocodiles in the rivers, fatigue, mm-hmm. or disease. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty harrowing adventure to cover easily over a thousand miles. Um, but these animals have been doing this route. Um, from the Pliocene age, so a long, long time. Yeah, a couple million years. Yep. Yeah. And once again, they're following the rainy season, and they're looking basically for food and water. And so if you're a visual person like myself, um, I found some really cool graphics that depict this uh, annual migration, which basically starts somewhere in southern Ken- Kenya uh, in the Masamara, from October to November, they're grazing on the grasslands and things start to dry up. And there's some type of cue, uh, whether it's a nutritional cue or an olfactory cue, researchers do not know, which is one of the greatest mysteries, if you ask me, considering this migration is so well-studied and well-known and well-loved by people. Mm-hmm. Chris, no one knows what triggers the migration. No one knows. That's, so, yeah. Any well, of our listeners out, out there? there yeah. <laughs> yes, go study this. Now, there's 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 clues, and we'll, we'll I'll talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, they, there's really no smoking gun as far as why all of a sudden they're on the Masabara Plains on the game reserve, and it's October, November, and they're eating the grass, and they decide, you know what, we're gonna head south. All of us. <laughs> I know. And then the wildebeest and the zebras and the Thompson gazelles, they head south into northern Tanzania. And they make their way to the southern region of the Serengeti, in, which is, once again, in northern Tanzania. 
from about December to May. They will calf there on the lush green grasses, fatten up, and then in somewhere around June, midsummer, they decide, you know what? This isn't giving me what I need. And even though I have calves, so there's sometimes a half a million baby wildebeest news that are on the ground that are born between February and March every year. And then in June, a few months later, they decide, you know what? Let's head north. So then they head northwest in the Serengeti still, but towards the Grumati Game Reserve. And they hang out there July and August and then slowly make their way northeast back into the Masamara Game Reserve in southern Kenya, where this part of the journey is where they cross the Mara River, mm-hmm. which is a big river, uh, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, pretty famous for uh, watching you know, tens of thousands of wildebeest jump into it and just swim for their life and where we're all rooting them on and, and hoping they make it across the Mara River. And a lot do, most do, but some don't. And there's estimates from researchers that about a half a percent of the total herd will drown while crossing the Mara River. So it's a, mm. it's a pretty harrowing adventure. Yes, uh, but what's super fascinating about these deaths is that there is a silver lining to them. So in 2017, researchers out of the um, PNAS, which is a pretty prestigious journal called the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. And so what researchers have observed is that these these bodies that have drowned um, and decay, they, of course, as Chris mentioned earlier, feed a lot of local scavengers, vultures, fish, but they also leave behind tons of nutrients into the river and the ecosystem there. And these researchers discuss that Uh, it's equivalent to the biomass of about 10 blue whales being dropped into a river. And so we all know blue whales, the biggest uh, animal ever to- Ever, uh, ever, 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 ever. more than dinosaurs, ever. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. So 10 of those being dropped into that river with all of the carbon, all the nitrogen, all of the sulfur, all of the, the- minerals, iron, and copper, and other other really important uh, critical elements and minerals that are needed in the ecosystem there. So it's sad when they don't make it, but there probably is almost a role in that, mm-hmm. in them not making it, that their bodies go back to earth. And it's really, it's important for all the other species around that area. So just just fascinating. Oh well, yeah, um, and they feed so many other animals. Of course, yeah, too. Well, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. This is not even including the the prey aspect of mm-hmm, it, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's a lot of biomass that can do a lot of things um, in that region uh, as the wildebeest are coming through in August to September. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Chris, I had to keep digging around and and and, and looking for well. Why? Why do these wildebeest migrate, but other ones don't, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it is important to note that black wildebeest don't migrate and not all of the subspecies of blue wildebeest migrate. And so researchers, once again, cliff notes, don't know the answer for sure, but it's thought to include food abundance, predators, 
water availability, right? They need to drink water in order to live. But a new hypothesis has come out that suggests that the migration is driven or one of the main factors is the phosphorus content in the grasses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So talking about minerals and elements that are crucial to all of life, phosphorus is one of them. Our bones are made out of calcium and phosphorus. Uh, It's an important part of the human diet and all mammals for that matter. And especially if you're a lactating female, phosphorus is extremely important. So several researchers have suggested that the reason that they're following the rains is the greener grass the rains bring are higher in phosphorus levels and other nutrients as well. So in particular, phosphorus, and to some extent, one study pointed out nitrogen, the content of these two um, elements is really, really high. And so it's thought that that might drive this circular pattern throughout the Serengeti from north, east, southwest that we see. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the nutrition dork came out in me. I'm like, yes, wow. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I, once again, I don't know how we would necessarily prove that theory, uh, but we do know the animals will travel for mineral licks and things like that. So, mm-hmm. and it and it does make sense too that once that once a female calves, her nutritional demand, her caloric demand, her essential nutrient demand mm. skyrockets yeah, because yeah. she's lactating. And I mean, it's very draining on the body. Trust me. Yeah, yeah I bet. <laughs> so I bet. <laughs> I uh, now I, I didn't have to cross a, a thousand miles in, uh, in a river filled with crocodiles but sometimes I felt like I almost did when it came, when it came to breastfeeding my children. You got some gators in your backyard. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. So, so yes, Chris, it's just, just fascinating. And as we watch those videos of the wildebeest crossing the rivers, and, and it, it looks just chaotic and frantic and desperate at times, also beautiful. They, you know, they know how to swim, and they just jump right in like – so brave. I was watching some of these videos. I'm like, I, I wouldn't be that. I'd be like the wildebeest. They would like turn around and be like, no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah, going no, in there. No. But but they do, and they're really, it's a, you know, an instinct. They're very driven to do this. And it's this herd mentality. But a new study came out, and I could not really follow along with it because it was way above my pay grade. Mm-hmm. But researchers are starting to look into the fact that this migration and, and this river crossing of the of the Mara River uh, in Tanzania is is not as frenzied or chaotic as it might appear. Mm-hmm. That that the wildebeest might possess something known as swarm intelligence, where the animals systematically basically explore and overcome obstacles as one unit. Now I don't know how these researchers are going to prove it because I <laughs> but the the mathematics that they were talking about as I started to read the paper mm-hmm. made me say, you know what? We're just going to table this swarm <laughs> yes. intelligence discussion yeah. for a couple more years and maybe maybe get a specialist on here that understands a little bit better. But it does follow suit that these animals, of course, are working on instinct, but they are working together as a herd. 
Right. right. But wildebeest are so fascinating in that they can be in this herd of hundreds of thousands, but they can also be pretty sedentary too and have just small little herds of anywhere from one male and like eight females and maybe some calves. Or there might be bachelor herds of bulls have been driven out with males that are too young to breed. So there's definitely this plasticity in their social behavior and, and, and how they, how they move. Because once again, some migrate and some don't, that really makes me feel like maybe, I don't know if swarm intelligence and I want to, I want to learn more about that, but just in general, they're very, very flexible and animal that's been able to adapt over millions of years to find the perfect system that works for them. And I just, I just, I hope it stays so that my great, 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 great grandchildren can see it. Yeah. No, when you say swarm, I'm thinking bees and how they do swarm and mm -hmm. their intelligence and how they know where to go, the direction. Well, and they like, yeah, they act like a single, yeah, Mm -hmm. this, all the different bodies move to to act as like a singular unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And so they say that the paper, of course, talked about, like you said, like, you know, um, from small organisms that we can barely see, you know, to larger mm-hmm. ones. And that so some of this behavior they're wondering um, is not, an, you know, might be an example of this swarm intelligence. So um, yeah, it's fascinating. That's very yeah, fascinating. Yeah. It made me, it made me, it made me watch the video clips differently. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. as far as like, oh, they're not just, you know, frantically jumping into the water. They, they know what, what their role is and, um, and how to move through it all. It's just pretty incredible. Yeah. 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 And then what are some of the other behaviors that, that we know about wildebeest? Well, like we mentioned, they will mix with zebras and gazelles, uh, which researchers think that one of the evolutionary benefits of that is giving them a little bit more of an awareness of potential predators because they're all prey animals. They're all very sensitive to sounds and sights and smells. So if there's more of them and even of other species that it can give the individual a better chance of survival. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and they'll also sometimes travel with baboons, which will also... <laughs> On the yeah, back? Baboons. Yeah, I don't know, front or back, but the baboons will make um, warning calls to help okay, also okay. Uh, alert them of danger. So, uh, you know, uh, safety in numbers, we got to okay. love that. And once again, I think it's just important to reiterate that their social state or the size of their herd can be mobile, it can be sed- sedentary. A lot is determined by food and water, uh, which subspecies they are, where they live, and um, and also if it's a breeding season or not the breeding season. So they're very dynamic with their, their social, uh, social stances as far as how, how they can get along or how they can kind of move around in smaller groups. Their vocalizations, the way that they communicate with one another is definitely through runs and snorts and blows. But a male, he can emit what's known as a bellow and it can travel up to two kilometers. So it, it's really can be quite powerful um, as far as a vocalization for an ungulate. It's probably why that dome didn't really, they really need it because <laughs> the right. standard model could still. Yeah, scream, they're like, we can make, make our make own noise. bellows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll go back to the traditional way. And they also communicate with one another through olfactory um, as far as having preorbital underneath their eye and pedal gland secretions 
and then urine and feces as well will help communicate uh, one another as far as if the female is in breeding season mm. or um, probably a ton of other chemical signatures that we're just not really aware of and, and probably a, a lot about migration and migration patterns. Now, one of the things I was waiting for you to talk about is reproduction because one of the, the fascinating things about this mass migration is the, the synchronization that goes on yes. with dropping the calves within a couple of weeks of each other, right? Like, I, I don't know, you'll talk more about it, but how that has been, I don't know if you want to say evolution or they've, they've evolved this way, but it's for survival, right? Like, it, it's fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Once again, safety in numbers, but to get all of the calves to drop, in that February to March timeframe when they are in the Southern Serengeti in Northern Tanzania, that means they all have to breed around the same time. And so what's super fascinating about wildebeest and their breeding behavior is that breeding will usually happen at the end of the rainy season. The animals are well-fed and they're happy and they're super fit. So this is going to be somewhere between May and July and the animals are are going to be in the southern to south, western, heading north uh, part of their migration in, in the Serengeti. And the females will come into estrus during about a three-week time period, um, sometime in May and June. In male wildebeest during breeding season, go into rut, which is pretty typical in an antelope or cervid uh, species, where the male just gets extra crazy. He's very high in testosterone and this uh, testosterone is going to produce or it's going to encourage his sperm production to increase. And he's just going to, of course, be wanting to fight more males and be more interested in females and vocalizing. During rut, the male wildebeest will not eat very much or sleep very much, which when you're um, a zookeeper taking care of a male uh, a male antelope um, or deer in rut, it's very disheartening because sometimes <laughs> they'll, 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 lose, they'll lose weight and they yeah. won't eat and they're just like a stress ball. Uh, but it's yeah. that darn testosterone and it makes them do crazy things. <laughs> that's, what we, that's what we deal with every day. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, I was like, uh, it's it's hard to watch when you're like, JR, what's happening to you, buddy? Uh, you were sweet, please. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were so sweet. Now you're just like standing in the corner moaning and not wanting to eat and just looking at your girlfriend uh, nonstop. <laughs> I thought I was your girlfriend, JR. Uh, JR was one of the white-lipped deers that I got to work with, and he was, he was so silly when he was in rut. But anyways, it serves a really important pu- purpose, this rut, once again, it increases their sperm production. But what's fascinating, Chris, about wildebeest is during rut and during this breeding season, the males come together and form what's called a lek, L-E-K, another very great Scrabble word. We're full of them today. And leks are really well known in uh, species of birds. Uh, I don't know if we've covered one yet, but of course we will in the future. And we'll get to talk about uh, lekking behavior with certain bird species. But I thought it was really unique that the wildebeest do this. And the definition of a lek is an aggregation of males that come together and participate in like displays that can often be competitive or ritualistic courtship displays, which is known as lekking. And the whole goal is lekking 
is for the females to be watching and surveying prospective partners. Like, ooh, that one vocalizes well, and ooh, that one can really battle the other male. (laughs) And it's really fascinating that they all come together and do this, and then the male and the female come together, and I'm presuming the, the female will pick who she likes the best, right? And so researchers are are really fascinated and also stumped a little bit about the benefits of lecking. Because what ends up happening is the really strong, handsome males, of course, will partner up with a female. Mm-hmm. The males that are not quite as strong or as pretty or or whatever it is the individual species is looking for, a loud bellows is loud or has the stinkiest preorbital gland secretion, mm-hmm. then, then they won't get to breed. Researchers think that the benefit of the lek in wildebeest and other species as well is that when all these males clump together and do their courtship and ritualized displays, they not only attract females, but then they can retain some of these females. And so they actually get the benefit of getting more females and then also enjoy an anti-predator behavior since there are more of them to potentially defend themselves. So females are going to feel safer in this large group and they're going to be attracted to these males and then they're going to head that way and it's safer for everybody. The other really fascinating hypothesis about why lek and why come together and not just do it on your own like so many other species, um, it's something called the hot shot hypothesis, which I just love that name. I want that to be like a band name. <laughs> yeah, funny. hot shot. But this theory suggests that, yes, there is a male that's a hot shot and he's Mr. Cool Pants and he's mm-hmm. attracting all the women. But other males that aren't as cool will form kind of their own little lek around the hot shot and basically be able to try and have a bigger chance to lure the female away from the hot shot. So there's a hot shot. He may breed the female, but you try to steal the hot shot from the female. I just love that this is, people have these jobs. Like this is what they're studying. I'm super jelly. I'm very very jealous. jealous. I love it. Uh, I I did not know that wildebeest lek. I I missed that, I guess, in in my previous wildebeest uh, studies. So Mm -hmm. it's just fascinating. And, And now I'm really motivated to do a bird that, uh, exhibits lecking behavior because right, right. it's a lot more well studied in birds. So after breeding or when they come together, yeah. So when male, whether the hot shot breeds the female in estrus or maybe the not so hot shot, uh, a, a female will be pregnant for about eight months. So it's a good yeah, gestation a period. Yeah, <laughs> taking it from us females, we do it for nine months. It's it's long, uh, but this works well with their migra- migration route and the seasonality of uh, the wet areas in uh, in Africa where they live. The female eight months later, once again around that February March timeline, when they are in the Southern Serengeti, the grass is green. Uh, she'll give birth to a single calf. A wildebeest calf is pretty much ready to go shortly after birth, similar to horses. They can stand on their own within a few minutes and begin to nurse. They weigh about 20 kilograms and they stick near their mom real close, not only for milk, but also for her protection. But they are expected to 
you know, start moving their legs and keep up with their mom right away. And Chris, I know we talked about large groups of penguins and the vocalizations. What was it? The cocktail party hypothesis? Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Like if you hear your name. Yeah, like how does, how can the adult penguin find their chick to bring them food when there's all of them honking and making just a ruckus? A beautiful chorus, if you ask some, but overall (laughs) ruckus and that basically that they the individuals can parents can hear their offspring mm-hmm. and they know their vocalization which is just an incredible intelligence that blows my mind but similarly with wildebeest and when they're in this large groups 500,000 a million of them yeah. one and a half million of them the mother offspring recognition is super critical and it can be achieved by scent or olfactory alone so very, very good sense of smell, very unique chemical signature that a mom and a calf has, because that's how she can recognize her calf when there's thousands of them moving at a time. Mm-hmm. So if they are separated during a chase, uh, you know, an, an event with a, a predator or crossing a river, that they can come back together through scent alone, which is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Around eight to nine months old, a wildebeest calf will be weaned, and they're basically on their own, and they form groups with other yearlings, if you will, uh, peer groups to hang out with. And then a wildebeest is not going to reach sexual maturity until they're about 16 months old. However, they're probably not going to reproduce until they're about two years if they're a female and maybe a little bit older if they're male, depending on, once again, what hot shots they (laughs) <laughs> they hang out yes, with yes. when they're lecking. Yeah. Uh, so it might be even older in males. Well, we've already touched upon their conservation. I mean, least concern and, and again, with, with some challenges, an area that we all need to get to. Now, I know Angie didn't, you couldn't find really a wildebeest organization. So there you go. There, there's, there's a hole that could be filled. <laughs> with, yes, with the hippos. not only not only conservation. Yes, we need we need wildebeest, we need hippos, uh, but also yeah, just how like how do they know to migrate? Is it something? Can they smell the rain? Is there a chemical signature in the grass? Mm-hmm. I mean, is it the weather? Is it photo period? Uh, they just they just don't know. It's just so yeah. fascinating. Yeah, there's so much to learn about them. But I did want to highlight because last week I brought this up when I was talking about how to help you know African endangered species knowledge sharing this information sharing this podcast is a big help that you can do but I know I I have received emails and Angie's received emails from our listeners asking you know how can I help conservation and now that the, the pandemic is is hopefully waning and, and this year we, we, we see it become endemic instead of a pandemic. The Africa Conservation Experience, it, it's an amazing organization. And I, and I got to give tip my hat to Angie. She brought this up a couple years ago. I know she doesn't really remember, but I remember her talking about it. And what it is, this organization was founded in 1999 and they sponsor short trips or volunteer projects. There are internships for where you can go to Africa and volunteer. I actually had a good friend from South Carolina who she was telling me about her and her husband were going to go do some black rhino work uh, until Omicron hit. So that canceled that, but they're looking to do that to where you go 
and you travel and you can do conservation work for your like vacation or over over your vacation. So they can be found again at conservationafrica.net and they have many projects going on, wildlife veterinary work, adventure courses. You can take sabbaticals or career breaks. Angie, (coughs) (laughs) I might do that. Uh, They have elephant projects, lion projects, rhino projects, other projects ongoing where you can go and volunteer. And I think for anybody wanting to break into animal conservation, this is something you should seriously consider. You know, talk to your parents, find ways you can fundraise because you go and get actual experience, you know, whether it's for a few weeks to a couple months where you're on the ground, you're working in the field in conservation, you bring that experience back to your home country, and then that would open you up to graduates programs, other things. It's funny, we're coming full circle. When Angie first showed up in my office, you know, wanting to do a master's degree at first. And then I begged her, begged her to do her PhD, literally begged Angie. And then she told me, oh, well, I'm pregnant again. (laughs) I was like, woohoo, I don't care. Just stay, please. Um, But one of the things that struck me about Angie is she was a zookeeper for, for many years. And I knew the field of zookeeping. I knew how hard working she, she must've been to be successful in that field. And it was a work ethic. It was her experience. I was like, yes, I want you to come into my graduate program. So something to consider, you know, for, for our audience, uh, or if you just want to go work with the animals in Africa, you know, and not for a career and you want to, want to give back. So again, Af- conservationafrica.net. They have a wonderful uh, Facebook page that I've liked, the African Conservation Experience. Uh, it's got great reviews, like a f- almost five-star review on what they're doing. And check it out, please. Yes, Chris, as somebody who has been to Africa and worked on volunteer research projects, I mean, they were pivotal in my career. And just a great way to get experience, give back, learn what you like and what you don't like. Uh, whenever I'm talking to prospective students and that are wondering, how do I break into the wildlife um, wildlife industries. And I'm like, well, a lot of it's just figuring out what you like and what you don't like. I mean, I had um, one of the PhDs that I worked for when I was an undergrad studying the golden lion tamarins. Uh, I got to know her very well. We worked at Zoolanta together. I would collect feces, uh, golden lion tamarind feces in the morning to help measure the cortisol stress levels for this family group that was living in a free range exhibit at Zoo Atlanta. But Molly, she was so wonderful. She was a great mentor. She's, uh, I was talking to her. I'm like, oh, well, why golden lion tamarins? Like, why did you mm-hmm. pick this species to get your doc- your doctoral degree on? She's like, well, honestly, she's like, I did uh, my master's on, I forget which primate species it was in South Africa, but it was a really high, um, one that was like very high up in the canopy. And she's like, I just... I didn't like looking that high and like looking my neck, (laughs) craning my neck up, collecting behavioral data for, you know, however many hours a day. And I, and I just thought that was so fascinating. I was like, really? And she's like, yes. So I wanted to work with a species 
that was under human care, but was still in a free range exhibit. So we could learn more about how to better take care of them. And anyways, it was just fascinating of learning. It's not, sometimes it's not always learning what you like, but it's sometimes learning what isn't a fit for you and just getting the experiences and meeting people, 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 meeting Mm -hmm. people, uh, hearing their stories. And as Chris mentioned, even if it's not for a wildlife career, just to go have these experiences are just phenomenal. So yeah, check them out for sure. I may need to take a sabbatical when the boys are a little older. Yes. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Africa. Go for a few months. I don't know if I'll come back. I'll be at the rhino orphan or the elephant orphanage if you're looking I'll be for at me. The, yeah, I'll be at the rhino orphanage. But uh. <laughs> All right. Well, this one went a little bit longer. I knew it would be because they're just, they're, they're fascinating. Uh, oh, wait, still I still have a few more slides to cover. Oh, okay. Well, let's go. Part two. <laughs> just kidding. No, they are. They're just, they're just a fascinating species and we didn't ignore them on purpose. And we still have some big ones to cover, zebra. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know our very last episode will be Grevy Zebra. That's right. So then we That's know. Right. Yeah. Uh, we'll sign off in 10 years with that one. But uh, in between then, we've got quite a few to go. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to go ocean, but we'll see. I don't I don't know. We haven't really talked about what we're doing next week, but, but we'll see. If you can, please share this episode with family and friends and uh, make sure to follow us on social media and always hit the five-star like and follow button. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.